This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to present the original radio broadcast from 80 years ago during the days of the war, with the occasional more recent radio program about the war, entertainment from the day, and various other radio programs. Today, we have the January 30th, 1944 edition of CBS World News Today. It includes analysis and updates from Naples, London, Montevideo, Mississippi, Washington, and New York. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you happen to listen. And please visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts, where you can find links to past episodes and other information. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ww2radio. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II radio podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Today, brought to you by the Admiral Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas stations, as well as leading news centers of our own country, CBS correspondents are waiting to bring you a complete report from the world's political and battlefronts. But first, here's Doug Edwards. The Allies have expanded their bridgehead south of Rome today, but the Germans are putting up a stiff fight to hold their lines along the main Fifth Army front. Another full powerful fleet of American bombers has battered the German aircraft manufacturing city of Brunswick. Adolf Hitler urged his Germans to bear up under the strain, and he warned them that defeat would bring Bolshevism to Europe. The Russians continue their pressure in the Leningrad region, and in the Pacific War Zone, American carrier-based planes have made the heaviest attack so far on the Marshall Islands. Now for our first report from overseas, Admiral Radio takes you to Naples, Italy. John Daly reporting. French troops threatening the flank of the German Gustav line north of Casino yesterday recaptured three hills west of the Belvedere Nest and are now only three miles from Mount Cairo, the northern anchor of the German line. On their left, American forces only a mile or two above Casino inch forward meeting intense enemy resistance. The Germans have turned the Rapido River from its course above Casino, flooding the Casino San Elia Road. The fighting continues night and day. German mortars and artillery on the Cairo elevations blasted our positions during daylight, thinning down everything and everybody in the no-man's land in the valley between the heights. Infantry has to move at night, and although the muzzle blasts from the enemy guns light up the hillsides, they lack the advantage of pinpoint accuracy their observation gives them in daylight. Progress is slow, maddeningly slow, but this flank attack presents the brightest prospect of breaching the enemy line. To the south, along the Garigliano River on the Tyrrhenian coast, the British are once again on the move. 
Ten miles inland near Suyo, British Tommies broke the enemy's grip on three ridges, advanced one mile, and captured about a hundred prisoners. In the Enzio Natuno area, the expected German counterattack in strength was not materialized. Small groups of German infantry supported by tanks are hitting and running all along the periphery of our beachhead. One such attack was repulsed yesterday at Borgo Montello, about eight miles inland from Natuno. A German tank and a self-propelled gun were destroyed. And heavy explosions were heard in the direction of the Victoria airfield to the southeast. The situation on the beachhead is wholly satisfactory. Some 600 prisoners have been taken in the weeks since we landed. German air attacks continue, but Allied fighters cover the area north and go. And with our heavy and medium bombers, which attacked over a wide area north of Rome, they yesterday flew more than 1,300 sorties. Our heavy and medium bombers carried out attacks on the rail and shipping centers of Ancona, Rimini, Bologna, and San Benedito, all key points in the transportation network over which the Germans can bring reinforcements planes to the home area. Four enemy planes were destroyed yesterday, and we lost three. But two of our planes, reported missing last Thursday, are now known to be sent. As far as air operations go, the weather leaves much to be desired today. But the steady drone of our planes has been heard overhead all day. They fly above the overcast to attack the enemy position. Now back to CBS in New York. More news in just a moment. But first, here is Warren Sweeney with a word from Admiral Radio. Here's a story of radio's wartime role that is now history, but Admiral Corporation feels is worth retelling. After the Allied invasion of Sicily and the complete collapse of Mussolini's government, the chief cause for worry among Allied commanders was what to do about the Italian fleet. How could it be brought under Allied control peacefully? Naval officers appealed to a chief radio technician. Could we broadcast the terms of surrender so that all the Italian fleet could hear wherever they are? Yes, he replied, but only if they were flashed on the international distress frequency to which all ships listen. Let's do it, was the immediate reply. There was no suitable transmitter at hand, but the resourceful engineer volunteered to retune an old transmitter to operate on the desired frequency. Working against time, his difficult job was finished in a few hours, and the terms of surrender went on the air. You know the rest of the story. You know how most of the Italian fleet peacefully steamed into the harbor at Walter. Admiral Cunningham of the British Navy paid a growing tribute to American ingenuity and American radio. They have accomplished in a few hours what I have been trying to do for three years, he is reported to have said. Yes, the communications equipment built by Admiral and other American manufacturers is an indispensable tool of victory to Allied invasion forces everywhere. Before the war, Admiral Corporation was the world's largest manufacturer of radio phonograph combinations with automatic record changers. Though Admiral is now wholly engaged in war production, plans are going forward for the day when this vast production can be turned to building your new and better Admiral, America's smart set. Now, here once again for Admiral Radio is Doug Edwards. Admiral Radio takes you now to CBS London. Larry LeSueur reporting. American heavy bombers struck another mighty blow at central Germany in daylight today. Approximately the same number of American aircraft that hit Frankfurt yesterday struck at Brunswick, 110 miles west of Berlin today. Some 1,500 planes took part in yesterday's assault when we shot down 102 German fighters at the cost of 31 heavy bombers and 13 American fighters. Details are not yet in for today's smashing attack. The world at war has demonstrated that one of the most important and trying jobs in wartime is that of running a railroad engine. 
Here tonight is George Whiting, a British locomotive driver. He'll tell us what it's like to run a locomotive in wartime Britain, in fogs and blackout and during German air raids. Mr. Whiting, you've driven your locomotive all through the Blitz. What was your most thrilling experience? Well, I wouldn't call it exactly thrilling. I was doing a job that had to be done. British trains must run on time, peace or war. But the worst experience I had was when a German bomber was after my train. I had just come out of a long tunnel and was pulling up the grade. I imagined the German plane spotted the sparks coming from the engine. There was a canopy of searchlights over the track. Up above, I could see a big black object. It was a Nazi plane. I couldn't shake him loose because a train can't dodge. I just kept going along slowly, trying to lose him. But he seemed to keep following me. Finally, he dropped his bomb. Thank God they all missed. How about bringing your train into a station when there's a heavy raid on, Mr. Whiting? It doesn't sound like much fun. It's not fun, Mr. Lesseur. But we keep going unless conditions make it absolutely impossible. Several times I waited outside the station with my train loaded with ammunition because bombs were being dropped on the line ahead. Well, what about these new American engines, Mr. Whiting? I understand you've been testing them under wartime conditions. Yes, they're very fine locomotives. They'll be just the thing to use on the continent. We British engineers think that they have more gadgets than our locomotives, but they're certainly economical on coal. Well, how about those American whistles, Mr. Whiting? I'll bet you fellas like them. Uh, well, Mr. Lesseur, your whistles don't appeal to us. <laughs> they just give one big hoot, and that's all. Our British locomotives make what I call a more gentlemanly sound. We have two whistles, one for normal working and a lower tone one for the for emergency use. But that's not to say anything against your engines. They've been a great help to us in these overloaded days with all the troop trains. Well, anyone who has traveled in Britain since the war knows what a truly grand job the British railroads have done. And we're confident they'll be on the job for the mighty task ahead of them. We return you now to New York. After covering Argentina's break with the Axis, one of our correspondents has now crossed into neighboring Uruguay and is ready to report on the week's developments in South America. For this summary, Admiral Radio takes you to CBS Montevideo, Hugh Jenks of the United Press reporting. We are enjoying a beautiful summer day here in Montevideo, and the calm that prevails here seems to have extended across the broad expanse of the Rio de la Plata to Buenos Aires on the other side. As is natural, in the four days since Argentina has broken off relations with Germany and Japan, this city has been flooded with reports of major political developments inside Argentina. Most of these developments never occurred. The reports were based on the inevitable rumors and half-truths which accompany any major change in the foreign policy of a nearby nation. These rumors, including daily confidential reports that some or all of the Ramirez cabinet have resigned, continued to roll in here until about noon yesterday. But if there is a crisis in the Argentine cabinet, there has been no confirmation of it. This does not mean that there will be no resignations in the cabinet. Indeed, it would be strange if there were none, in view of the known totalitarian sympathies of various cabinet members. <clears throat> but it appears that President Ramirez has strengthened his position, and if and when the resignations are produced, he probably will remain in control of the situation. One of the most encouraging features of the past four days has been the speed with which the Ramirez government acted to implement the rupture itself. Communications with Berlin and Tokyo were cut off. Economic and financial dealings with the Axis and Axis-controlled countries were put to an end. And the pro-Nazi newspaper, El Pompeo, was closed for good and all. 
These steps, of course, are the logical consequences of the rupture. They may cause little surprise abroad, but it is no secret that United Nations diplomats in Buenos Aires were agreeably surprised at the speed with which they were taken. For, like the rest of the world, the diplomats had adopted an attitude of cautious optimism when the rupture was announced. Some of this caution must be retained, but there certainly appears to be more basis for future optimism. The press conference of President Ramirez last Thursday contributed further to this optimism. In that statement, he made clear that Argentina meant to follow through on the rupture. This is Hugh Jenks of the United Press in Montevideo. I return you now to Admiral Radio in New York. Back in this country, after a dramatic experience in China, is Lieutenant Tommy Harmon of the Army Air Corps. For an interview with a former Michigan football star, Admiral Radio takes you now to CBS Detroit, George Cushing reporting. Lieutenant Tom Harmon, Michigan's great All-American of 1940, came home the other day. That was a very simple but almost incredible event. Here he is to tell you his story. Speaking of coming home, I think my mother is the only person who never had any doubt that I'd come through all right. It was a funny thing. When the word got back that I was shot down in China, everybody stopped writing letters. That is, everybody but my mother. She kept right on, just as if nothing had happened. And when I got back to the base, there was a letter from her waiting for me. She told me all the news about the family and my friends, and not once did she mention the possibility that I might be lost. And that letter was written about two weeks after I was shot down. How long did it take you to get back? Thirty-two days. Tell us the story, Tom. What happened? It was last October on the 30th. Four of us were sent out in P-38s as fighter protection for four dive bombers on a raid against the Japanese docks at Kukiang on the Yangtze River. I was tail end Charlie, that is, the last man on the top cover flight. Nothing happened until Captain Bob Schultz of Sandusky, Ohio, the leader of our group, called out six zeros at three o'clock. I automatically looked behind me and there were six more coming in from the rear, so I called out six zeros at nine o'clock. It was a trap. Somehow the Japs must have known we were coming. Nevertheless, the dive bombers were just starting their run, and we went right on in. Two of the fighters, Lieutenant Jordan Robbins and Lieutenant Thomas J. Taylor, jumped into the six zeros ahead with Schultz, and I turned into the six behind me. The Japs concentrated on Captain Loden Enslin of Springfield, Missouri, the leader of the mission. He was flying the leading dive bomber. They shot him down right over the target area, but Captain Schultz got the Jap who led the attack against him. That's about all that I saw, that part of the fight. Then I turned. I busted right between two formations of three zeros. Three turned to the left, two of the others turned to the right. But apparently one of them got rattled. He turned right in front of me. My first machine gun burst, blew off his cockpit, and my cannon banged him right into the ground. I pulled out of my dive and went back up. I came up under another zero and got him at close range. He went up like a matchbox. After that, I heard a ring on my armor plate. It was a cannon burst. The second hit was under my seat, and the third went right between my legs. One of them started a gasoline fire in the cockpit, so I turned the ship over and tried to beat the flame out with my hands, but it was useless. I loosened my safety belt and jettisoned the canopy cover and flew out of the cockpit. The speed suction just pulled me out. Two zeros circled me all the way down, but they didn't shoot. They probably thought that I was dead. The explosion and fire had blown my pant legs off, and I was in pretty bad shape. It also burned my face and most of my hair. I landed in a lake below. The Zero zoomed over me several times, but I stayed under the parachute, and they finally went away. How'd you get back, Lieutenant? Well, that's something that I can't tell you. If the Japs knew how I got back, they might be able to prevent somebody else from doing the same thing. Okay, then. How about medical treatment? 
The first medical treatment I had was 17 days afterwards. I had second-degree burns on my legs, wrists, and face. I finally found a Chinese doctor, though, but all he had was some chrome and some used cotton. You see what I mean? Lieutenant Tom Harmon came home the other day. Simple, isn't it? That wasn't the first time, either. Now, last April, he had to bail out over the jungles in South America. He fought his way through jungles for seven days that time before he came back. I return you to Admiral Radio in New York. American dive and torpedo bombers have made the heaviest attack to date on Jap positions in the Marshall Islands. In a brief communique, Admiral Nimitz says planes from our carrier forces attacked the Marshall bases, including Wotje, Malayalop, and Kwajalein, and that word including may indicate that we hit additional bases. At the same time, dispatches from Pearl Harbor suggest that new details on these raids may be forthcoming at any hour. Germany's battered armies of the north today are reported fleeing into Estonia in Russia through a 30-mile bottleneck between the Gulf of Finland and Lake Pipus as Russian troops advancing more than 10 miles a day swept to the approaches of that Baltic state. Moscow dispatches say the next objective which the Red Army is expected to take imminently is the rail and road junction of King Isep, nine miles from Estonia on the Leningrad to Tallinn line. We've been hearing much about women war workers and the job they're doing. And now from Mississippi, we're ready to bring you a champion woman worker, a welder. For this interview, Admiral Radio takes you to CBS Pascagoula, Bill Slocum, Jr., reporting. After watching the finals of the Women's Welding Championship of the World here at the Ingalls Yards in Pascagoula, Mississippi, I'm now in a position to make two definite statements. First, the women welders of the world have been grossly fouled by radio comedians. And second, welding contests are not habit-forming. In a second, we shall meet the winner and runner-up, and you will hear for yourself that ladies can be welders and vice versa. As for the habit-forming phase of welding competitions, well, the judges must take X-rays of certain weldings before handing down a decision. This is not conducive to serious spectator outbursts. Vera Anderson, the defending champion, kept her title yesterday. Representing the local Ingalls Yards, she defeated Mrs. Edna Slocum from the Moore Yards in Oakland, California. Miss Anderson and Mrs. Slocum fought to a photo finish yesterday morning in the X-ray or quality portion of the contest. Yesterday afternoon, however, Miss Anderson retained her title by grace of some very good quality and extraordinary speed in the overhead, vertical, and downhand welding competitions. The two contestants fought it out in a regulation boxing ring. Male seconds worked with them, shouting advice in their pink ears as welding electrodes spluttered blue and yellow flames. After each round, so to speak, the judges moved in to examine the work, and the hard-fighting contestants walked quietly to their corners, pushed back their welding masks, and powdered their noses. Incidentally, the possibilities of a hometown decision for Miss Anderson were very remote. The United States Navy, the Maritime Commission, and the American Bureau of Shipping furnish the judges. Let's meet the champ first. Miss Anderson is 20 years old, and Miss Anderson is very pretty. She weighed in at 110 with full welding gear on yesterday. There is the best woman welder in the world, and there are an awful lot of women welders. Why do women make good welders, Vera? Well, I think it's because they have better nerves than men. In welding, muscle helps, but you've got to have those nerves, too. You looked pretty relaxed yesterday. To be exact, I was more relaxed than I am right now. But I was awfully tired when it was all over. Mrs. Slocum is a real good welder and a very nice lady. Got any plans now that you're a champion again? 
Sure, I'm going to keep right on welding. Thanks, Vera Anderson. Now the runner-up, Mrs. Edna Slocum of Oakland, California. Mrs. Slocum is the mother of two boys, one 12, the other 14. Sitting across from her now, I suspect that Mr. Slocum upheld the family tradition for child brides. She is a very young mother. Congratulations for finishing second. That's well above par for any Slocum. Well, I finished second to a magnificent welder. You're going to keep right on welding, too? Yes, sir, right up to our mistress day. It must be very hard work, this keeping a home running and doing a day's work in the shipyards. It is, but thousands of women are doing it, and will keep right on doing it, too. One more thing. If this was a prize fight, you could say, hello, Mom, but you're the mom. That's all right. Hello, boys. I'm fine. I'll be home real soon. A very nice switch, and I know they heard that via KQW in San Francisco. Miss Anderson and Mrs. Slocum, thanks, and keep them sailing. Now back to Admiral Radio in New York. And for the news on the home front and an interview with one of our airmen who has led a torpedo bomber squadron on submarine patrols, Admiral Radio takes you to CBS Washington, Don Pryor reporting. President Roosevelt is celebrating his 62nd birthday today. For lunch, he and Mrs. Roosevelt entertained the visiting stars of stage, screen, and radio who have been in town over the weekend as part of the birthday celebration program. Tomorrow on Capitol Hill, all thoughts of celebrations will be put aside when the Senate begins voting on the controversial soldier vote bill. The administration feels confident that it will be able to muster enough votes to pass the bill to provide a simple federal ballot for servicemen and women overseas. Another important measure, the new tax bill, is expected to receive final congressional action this week. Elsewhere here, rumors persist that a shake-up is in the offing down at the Office of War Information. The gossip has it that Elmer Davis is definitely on his way out, and that Byron Price will take over the OWI in addition to his regular job as director of the Office of Censorship. Now, we all know that all the power of the United Nations is being aimed right now at a full-scale invasion of Europe, and that before long, the armies will be going ashore over there. But that wouldn't be possible if we hadn't licked the U-boats first in the all-important Battle of the Atlantic. That battle is still going on, and it's being won every day by men like Lieutenant Junior Grade Harold G. Bradshaw, USN. He's here today to tell us how they do it. Well, I can't tell the whole story. No, but I think you can tell enough to give America some idea of the job that's being done out there. How long have you been out on that anti-sub duty, Lieutenant? I've been assigned to my present squadron for about a year, but we haven't spent all that time on anti-sub work. Well, how many attacks have you made? Can't say exactly how many we've made, but we've hit quite a few. Incidentally, I can't emphasize too much that it is a team job by the whole task force. Well, what does that task force consist of, Lieutenant? We have a carrier, one of the baby flat tops, and several destroyers. And, of course, the planes, too. Uh, Lieutenant Bradshaw, incidentally, is the senior officer of the torpedo bomber squadron in this particular task force. Just the other day, the Navy released a story about one attack which took 27 hours before the submarine was chalked up as a definite kill. Tell us about that one, Lieutenant. That was a real marathon. Lieutenant Gaylord sighted him first at about 8.20 in the morning. He was flying a Grumman Avenger. We call him TBS. The sub was running on the surface. Lieutenant Gaylord attacked, but he submerged. Then the destroyers were called in, and planes went out to help them direct their attacks. The destroyers attacked all day. At night, the destroyers stuck around to keep contact with the sub. The sea was extremely rough that night. About 11.30, the submarine came to the surface. Destroyer attacked with guns and depth charges, but he submerged again. Right after that, I was launched in the TBF, and I found him at 8.30 in the morning and called the destroyers in. Then I ran out of gas and had to land. Lieutenant Ogle took my place. The destroyer dropped depth charges until about 11.30 when the submarine came to the surface. 
Lieutenant Burstad and Ensign Jenkins were circling in fighters and immediately dove in and attacked. Lieutenant Ogle attacked again with depth charges, and destroyers opened up with gunfire. The South tried to fight back with the deck guns, but that did not last long. Well, it didn't last long, just five minutes uh, at the tail end of 27 hours. That gives you some idea of what the Battle of the Atlantic really involves. And that's how 150 U-boats were polished off last year. I return you to Admiral Radio in New York. And here is Warren Sweeney with a word from Admiral Radio. With conservation of nearly everything a prime necessity today, Admiral's home checkup chart was prepared to help busy Admiral dealers and servicemen conserve valuable time and to save you the expense of unnecessary service calls. This informative checkup chart by Admiral clearly illustrates and describes a number of items you can easily check at home before you call your Admiral dealer for repair service. Here's one timely suggestion. If your radio dial fails to light up, wait a moment. Only the pilot light may be burned out and your set may still operate. However, many AC-DC radios need the pilot light to properly balance the circuit. You should, therefore, replace it as soon as possible. But for major difficulties, you'll be pleased with the repair work of your Admiral dealer. He has the experience and the equipment to properly care for your set. He'll gladly give you an Admiral home checkup chart, too. Or write for one without cost or obligation. Simply address Admiral Radio in care of the station to which you are listening. The appearance of service personnel on this program does not necessarily constitute an endorsement of the product advertised. All over the world, on many invasion fronts, our gallant fighting forces are surging into action day after day, night after night. They are all out to make 1944 the year. They will keep on attacking until final victory is won. On the home front, too, Americans have gone all out. They have invested magnificently in three previous war bond drives. But now we're in the greatest home campaign, the fourth war bond drive. Let's throw everything into it. Let's make 1944 the year. Let's all back the attack with more war bonds. World News Today is brought to you each Sunday at this hour by the Admiral Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. Be sure to listen again next Sunday when Admiral brings you World News Today by shortwave, direct from leading news centers of the world. This is Warren Sweeney reporting coast to coast. For the makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. The WBBM Air Theater, Regular Building, Chicago. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the World War II radio podcast. We hope these old-time radio programs entertain and help you learn more about what Americans experienced during the war 80 years ago. Be sure to visit brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts for past episodes and more information 